In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today, but before I introduce him, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, share, and comment on this video if you enjoy it. My guest today is Bruce Holsinger. Bruce is a novelist and literary scholar based in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a recipient of the Gangheim Fellowship. He is the author of the USA Today and Los Angeles Times best-selling novel, The Gifted School, a book of the Month Club main, main selection. The novel won the Colorado Book Award and was named one of the best books of 2019 by NPR and numerous publications. The novel is currently in development as a TV series with NBC Universal Television. He's also the author of a Bannable book and the invention of fire, award-winning historical novels published by William Morrow. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Vanity Fair, the Washington Post, Slate, and many other publications. Bruce is also has also been teaching since 2005 in the Department of English at the University of Virginia, where he specializes in medieval literature and modern critical thought and serves as the editor of the quarterly journal New Literary, New Literary History. His nonfiction books have won major awards from the Modern Language Association, the Medieval Academy of America, and American Musicological Society, and his academic work has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Council of Land Societies. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Ruth, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you here. And thank you so much for making the time. I'm very, very excited to be yeah, speaking with you. Um, so as I introduced you, you were a novelist. Um, you've been working on historical fiction. I mentioned already, you know, the Bannable book, The Invention of Fire. But then uh, with The Gifted School, that was a departure for you. And your upcoming book, The Displacement, is also a departure from historical fiction. By the way, congratulations. No, yeah. So what prompted this departure for you? Well, I actually, it's, it was more of a return because when I, when I first started writing fiction, probably 15 years ago, I, I never uh, got an MFA. I wasn't really in, in fiction writing as I was growing up and going through graduate school. But um, I started noodling around. I wrote a really bad thriller years and years ago. Um, never, never found an agent, never got it published. I tried again. Um, finally, I wrote uh, another kind of mediocre novel that ended up, um, I, I found an agent, but she wasn't able to to sell it, but she talked me into writing a novel that right. was set in the period that I study. 
and that was a burnable book. And that was a, um, it's a historical novel set in late medieval England. It was followed up by the invention of fire. Mm -hmm. And those were, um, you know, books that I felt very passionately about. They were, you know, about the period that I, I teach. I've taught medieval literature for a lot of years. Um, and then I, I kind of felt myself wanting to to break out a little bit and and write about the contemporary world. And I I fooled around for a while with this idea of the gifted school, a novel that would be set in in um, a, a lightly reimagined Boulder, Colorado, where I taught for a number of years. And um, I, I wrote the novel over. It probably took me 10 years on and off to write it, um, but it, it came out right as the college admission scandal was breaking. And it's a novel about pressure parenting and snowplow parenting. And, and you know, it's about this group of friends that are all trying to get their kids into a, um, a highly competitive school for exceptionally gifted children. Um, so it's it's uh, it was a novel about um, about privilege and about um, about families and friendship. Um, it's a bit of a dark comedy, but it also has a kind of tragic arc to it as well. And, um, and it's, uh, and I think it was, it was good for me to, to break out of historical fiction, mm -hmm. which I hope someday to go back to. Right. And, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, before we started the interview, I'm really looking forward to reading The Gifted, um, myself being in New York and a mother okay. of a 10 year old. And... Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you're, you're right in the thick of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, um, of course, what I'm hoping we are going to spend most of the time is discussing your upcoming book, The Displacements. But before we get into that, I'm curious as to why you write and what does writing mean for you? Hmm. Well, why I write, it's, it's, it would be impossible for me not to write. Um, and in fact, I, I'm a... Um, I'm a really early riser and I'm always up before everybody else in my house. And um, it's the thing that I'm most thinking about mm -hmm. when I go to sleep and when I wake up. So for me, it's kind of a compulsion um, and, and always has been, whether it's fiction or my academic work. Um, I feel like for me, it's just something that I, it, it's not possible for me not to do. Now, why I write in different forms and, and what what leads me though in in those different directions down those roads, that's a more complicated question. I suppose when I'm writing my academic work, it's because I you know I have a preoccupation mm -hmm. where I, I have a research question that I'm tangling with, or maybe an object, an artifact. Um, I just finished a, a long book that I've been working on for years on on parchment on. Um, the animal skins that um, that the medieval culture wrote a lot of its um, a lot of its writing mm -hmm. on, and that so I'm always thinking about um, that domain of writing in kind of material terms. What's the object that I'm working on? Um, then when I'm writing fiction, it's more just I have a story in my head, and getting the story out is um, it just becomes a kind of imperative for me, and. Often I don't know the ending of the story. I'm not an outliner, mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I'll really be very preoccupied by where the story goes next, where the where the characters go, how to um, you know how to fit one, the next piece of the story onto the ones that I've already written. And I'll be very frustrated if I don't um, if I don't know what I'm writing in the morning when I wake up. So right. that's, that's not a very um, it's probably not a very satisfying answer, but it's certainly my answer. <laughs> no, it's a very satisfying answer. Yeah. And uh, but listening to you as well, um, 
and you know, I think you know, listening to you saying, you know, you kind of want to write a story and let it, let the story take you. And yet, um, your stories at the same time have so many themes, and I hope we can get in to discuss some of the themes in the displacement. And I was curious, uh, is that intentional or the story just ends up leading you to these uh, multiple themes throughout your work? Did you say frames? Themes, themes. Oh, themes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, there's that old, is it Bertrand Russell who said, you know, we're, we're all... Um, uh, either foxes or hedgehogs. Right. And, um, you know, the hedgehog, the, the fox is always flitting around and, and finding a lot of things. And the hedgehog knows one thing and is, is always just drilling down. And I feel like once I'm in the middle of a project, I become a hedgehog. But when I'm between projects, I'm a fox. I'm always going around. I start books that I never finish. I, um, th that just has happened to me so many times. Um, but once I'm, once I'm in something, I'm really dedicated to it. So, you know, one theme that I, in, in the gifted school and in, um, the displacements, the novel that comes out in July is the theme of privilege and yeah. its loss and its challenges and what happens to it. And, um, for me, that's a really, you know, these days, that's just a really a fascinating topic. Socioeconomic privilege, racial, racial privilege, geographical privilege, um, educational privilege. Those are issues that I think are, are always burning, if not near the top, uh, if not at the top, near the top of so many other issues. So that, that's a theme that in recent years, I've really wanted to tackle. Right. And we want to get into displacement, and I'm hoping you can read an excerpt. But right. before we do that, I just want to ask actually maybe two questions or a couple of questions more. One of them being, so the, the, the podcast um, is really around, uh, you know, looking at tinkering with this question, and I, we discussed it in Virginia as well, can mm -hmm. fiction raise awareness? Can it be raised to motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis. And one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about the displacement is because I think it does a lot of that. But I did, I do want to hear your own take on this question. Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I, I am a, you, you know, you think of the, the history of literature and certain works that have had a kind of, uh, if, if not a humanitarian action, potential, certainly a, a kind of revolutionary potential or a reformist potential. I mean, there are obvious examples that any English professor can pick out of the air, books that have, you know, had that kind of impact on on raising mm. sort of political or social awareness. Um, Uncle Tom's Cabin is the is the, the old cliche, but, you know, other ones, um, 1984, raising, you know, issues about totalitarianism and so on. But I go back to also to works and, you know, that I study in, in the medieval world, like um, William Langland's Piers Plowman, that was a work that was actually taken up by rebels in, in 1381, mm -hmm. um, who were, um, you know, thousands of them um, um, converging on London. They were burning archives and they were, um, you know, trying to, to overthrow um, uh, clerical and royal control of English institutions. And there, are, there's, there's evidence in the historical record of them using this poem, this Middle English poem, Piers Plowman, um, for its potential and, and Piers Plowman, the main protagonist in it as a kind of allegory for their own, um, you know, assault on, mm -hmm. on the, on, on English institutions. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that literature has always had that 
that potential. Right. Um, and of course, it's very dependent on time and place um, for humanitarian action. Um, you know, literature is something that, you, you know, you never want to be instrumental about it, right? You don't want to pass out a book in hopes of right. inspiring people to take certain kinds of action because you never know what sort of actions they might take that you don't right. want, right? Once you pass it out, it's kind of right. out of your control. You know, but I think that w one of the, the ways that it can have that potential is, you know, a poem can really change you. Um, a, a powerful short story can, um, can literally change your brain chemistry. Um, and I think those are, those are the ways on, on that kind of individual level, the, the teaching of compassion, of, of, of love, of community. Um, those are some of the ways that I think literature probably moves us um, most effectively, but they're very hard to discern, I think. And you never know how they're going to, um, how, how that kind of reading experience is, what, what it's going to result in, what sort of emotional capacity it will create in, in readers. Um, so I'm sure, you know, if you, if you, um, move from, from different times and places to others, you know, you find, um, pieces of literature, whether fiction or poetry, creative nonfiction, having those sorts of effects. They've certainly had those, those effects on, on the world in, in many, many ways. Um, but you know, it's, it's very much about the case study, I suppose. Right. No, and I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, I enjoy speaking to people and listening to their tech on, on what fiction can do and what it cannot do. And I think one of the things I'm also hearing is like, it's really difficult to, to know for certain that certain actions have been taken and whether they are the right uh, or wrong actions. Displacements, the displacements. Um, and as I've said to you earlier, it's, it's such an incredible book. Uh, such an ambitious book as well. Um, it covers so many themes. I think I read it over three days. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a page turn, and I think that's how some of the people have also described it. But what is this book about? Well, the, the main, you, you were asking earlier, Ruth, about themes, and the main theme of this novel is downward mobility. Um, I guess if you, if you, Put together downward mobility and and very uh, near future climate change. That's those two things, and and how they'll they'll um, interact with each other. So the the main uh, the the main plot of the book revolves around a family, a seemingly affluent family, very well off, living in South Florida on the on the shores of Biscayne Bay and in Coral Gables, right? You know, basically part of Miami, Miami Dade County. Um, and they're living there right when the world's, what gets called the world's first category six hurricane, um, strikes South Florida, um, Hurricane Luna, as the novel imagines it. And this family is, is displaced. They, um, by, by, um, hook and crook, they, they end up, um, kind of in, in trouble in North Florida as they're evacuating. And they end up going to a mega shelter that's run by FEMA and the Red Cross in Oklahoma. And there they, they meet a number of other characters in the novel, and they're caught up in this national, um, this mass internal displacement within the United States in the wake mm -hmm. of the storm, which destroys South Florida, but then also destroys Galveston and Houston and Texas. So you have millions of people 
internally displaced. And that's an important category for the novel, internal yeah. displacements. These are IDPs. They're not refugees. And that's a, you know, they're, they're not crossing national yeah. boundaries as the UN defines refugees versus internally displaced persons, IDPs. So the novel is, is also about government dysfunction and it's about failing institutions. And, you know, it's taking place it could be taking place a few months from now. It could be a couple yeah. of years from now, but it's very, very near term. It's not, the novel is not post-apocalyptic. It's very much practical and pragmatic and on the ground right now. Um, so it's thinking about those. It's also thinking about, and you know, this is really your your world too from the UN. It's thinking mm -hmm. about relief work. One of the main characters, Lorraine Holton, Rain Holton is um, is a FEMA regional manager who's, who's running this displacement camp um, this mega shelter in Oklahoma and some of the challenges that she's facing um, and how she's interacting with the, the federal government. There's also a, an insurance agent um, yeah. who's also a drug dealer who's yeah. in the camp and, and trying to, um, you know, trying to hide out from, from his suppliers and, um, and you meet this a host of other characters as the novel goes on. So it's trying to think about, uh, mass displacement and downward mobility and government dysfunction from all these different angles, many, many different points of view, but mostly from, you know, from the point of view of this one family um, struggling through their own, um, you know, drastic and, and sudden change in fortunes. Yeah. And I will come back to you and ask you a bit more about the themes. I know you've mentioned some of them, but before we do that, maybe this would be a good moment for you to read an excerpt from the book yeah absolutely so th this excerpt i'll read it, it comes from early in the book and it's the first time we hear mention of the storm um hurricane luna and i wrote this most of the novel is written in a very close third person and then there's some excerpts that are written in first person um in the form of personal testimonials from people who are affected in various ways. We, we could talk about that in a bit, about yeah. the framing of that. Yeah. But this is the, you know, Luna is is also kind of a character in, in the book, but I write her sections. I'm gendering her as a, as a hurricane. Um, I'm writing those sections about Luna in a kind of omniscient view, point of view. So I'll just read you the first of those. Um, Shortly after sunrise, a squall off the Gambian coast joins a rank of thunderheads crowning miles into the stratosphere. Dueling systems, two storms converging where the canary current dips to meet the North Atlantic equatorial. A play of lightning and sheeting rain roils the ocean waters. White caps foam the crests of waves. Late the same morning, from the south and the scattered islands of the Biagos archipelago, another storm edges in, lower, more tempestuous in its churnings. The third system carries warmer waters beneath its front. The storms mingle and convect a cycling dance of sea, sky, and rain. Hundreds of miles to the south-southeast, the father-son crew of a fishing charter off Cape Verde help a banker from Lisbon struggle a blue marlin to the deck. Once the fish is stowed in ice below, the three clients arrange themselves along the gunnels, swilling coffee from foam cups while the craft rides the swells. Without warning, a heavy gust sweeps the deck, wrenching cups into the sea, slamming one of the men against the superstructure. The other two clients share a good laugh at their companion's expense. The captain and his son trade looks, a subtle wag of the father's beard. 
When you fish the countercurrents for going on 30 years, you know a thing when you smell it. The pressure rises in your bones and bends the invisible air. Even the sun knows what this new sea means. Another hour, two at most, then it's all out for salvagente. The Lisboans will not be pleased. The gathering storms fuse and collide. For hours, the system remains loose, a disturbance in the Atlantic weather pattern. Deep within a high cloud, there is a shift in the convection flow and a modification in vertical temperature variation. The system organizes the warms, rallies the winds, until, as one, the three storms accelerate and spin. A slow cyclonic spiral, 108 nautical miles north of the equator. The rotation is counterclockwise. By 4 o'clock p.m. Gambian time, the satellites have captured enough data to effect a change in status. The system upgrades to a tropical depression, drawing more eyes to weather screens in the Caribbean islands along the eastern seaboards of the Americas. Five hours later, the depression has matured into a tropical storm. She spins and strengthens until she is hale enough to earn a name. She is Luna. And so that, that excerpt, that chapter is, is trying to, you know, it's before she's been named even as a hurricane, let alone as a Category 6 hurricane. And she's, um, she's developing in the Atlantic, but it's, it's trying to convey a sense of suspense and, and you know, how this event, this, this collision of storms, you know, off the, off the coast um, will soon be making its way across the Atlantic. So it's kind of creating her as a character first coming yeah. into being in that chapter. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, when I was preparing to speak with you, one of the things I have, you have all these, you know, multiple characters and I'm like, you know, Luna is really the the main character. And um, what happens once she hits? Well, once she hits your, you know, the, um, this, this family, um, Daphne and her children are already, already on the way out of town and, um, uh, you know, traveling in a minivan north on I-95. Uh, but when she hits, you know, there's, there's other chapters that detail the devastation that, that, that the hurricane causes. And one of, the, one of the challenges was thinking about, you know, in, in the near term, the, you know, as, as climate change is making storms worse and worse, yeah. thinking about how to, how to manage expectations and, and what, um, you know, what goes into that. So I, one of the things I did when I was working on this book was interviewed um, meteorologists, you know, specialists in Atlantic hurricanes, specifically in, in Caribbean and, and, you know, Eastern Atlantic seaboard of the United States, what, what hurricanes look like and how they develop. And of course, the highest designation for hurricanes right now is category five. That's yeah. just, um, they go one, two, three, four, five. And, and most meteorologists will tell you there's no reason for a category six hurricane because five is as high as it goes. Right. But I, in, in the interval, in, in some of the um, interleave sections that talk about the storm and the story in retrospect, I have a kind of political dispute going on at the yeah. National Hurricane Center, which reports up to the Secretary of Commerce and the secretary really, there's a, a desire on the part of the government to, to really convey to the citizens of Florida how horrible this hurricane is going to be. And there's been her category five hurricanes before, so how do yeah. they do it? So there's this, you know, I had to learn about how this could come about and what would be the bureaucratic elements that would, yeah. would create this new category. Um, so that was one of the, I won't say fun, it was a bit harrowing, but it right. was fascinating to think about what that 
would look like. And, you know, the meteorologists, the hurricane experts I talked to, you know, I, I, I had a sense in my head of worst case scenarios. Theirs were so much worse. Right. Um, and that, that was one of the really devastating things I learned. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of, I mean, luck is probably the wrong word, but it, you know, it's a matter of, of chance when, when something like this will happen, because it certainly will. Yeah. No, and I mean, I mean, there is, of course, the science of it and all of the research and all of these experts doing all of that work. But the reality of it, I mean, we see the evidence, we see more and more uh, hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, and they get worse and worse, more and more fires. But also, I, I guess for me, reading the book and I've seen, um, but also in my own work, I've actually been part of responding to when these kinds of events hit. But you really watch the water, the winds, and I think most of us have seen the videos of them just pretty much immersing and destroying yeah. an entire landscape Yes, in a, in, a, in a couple of seconds or minutes. Yeah. Yeah, let alone in a few days, you know, yeah. and, that, and that's, um, you know, one of the things the book is really trying to explore is, you know, by being set basically in the present um, or the very near future is trying to think about the um, the impacts of climate change on um, affluent communities. Right? Yeah. And that, that's one of the things that really comes across in, you know, wildfires in California, in Colorado, where, you know, um, resort, entire resorts being burnt out or wineries yeah. in California. And you can't impute any individual event to climate change, but the kind of uh, accumulation of that and its effect on um, the even the extremely affluent. And that's one of the things that, that I try to get across in, in the book is, you know, the and this is one of the things that um, that scientists were stre who, who work in, in South Florida were stressing to me is just the amount of wealth yeah. in that in that part of the world. And this is true in so many coastal communities, um, let alone like, you know, Sonoma County um, in, in California, just the sheer amount of of destruction of capital um, that is coming for for this country. Um, you know, it's it's a truism that climate change and displacement will affect um, you know, people who are lower on, on the socioeconomic ladder vastly more uh, um, radically, mm -hmm. and it already is um, by the tens of millions. If you look at um, you, the, the scale of climate displacement already in so many parts of the world, but, but that doesn't mean that it's not also going to have a profound effect on um, the middle class, the upper middle yeah. class, the very, very wealthy. Um, you know, it's no mistake that, you know, one of the themes of so much post-apocalyptic climate fiction is billionaires building, yeah. you know, little nests in space or in the moon yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah. but, you know, we don't need to go all the way there to be thinking about the, the effects of it on, on, on those sorts of populations. Yeah. And I'm glad, I mean, you, you really did this as well, because you're absolutely right. Uh, what we see when you look at humanitarian crisis, whether it's conflict, whether it's, it's, it's climate change, they always affect um, the most poor in any country. Um, and there's various reasons for that. But it was fascinating to me, really looking and that's one of the things about climate change in many ways, it, it doesn't really choose. So it's going to hit a country, whether it's wealthy or not. Yeah. Um, and trying to see how this very wealthy family is, is coping with it or not coping with it. 
and the dynamics, I guess you get back to privilege and class and the dynamics of how it plays out for this family, what their needs are, what their expectations are. Yeah. Um, but also the other thing I found fascinating, particularly for this family, was our reliance on credit cards and, and yes. phones. <laughs> and and yeah. once that is cut off, um, you know, and I think that's something else I was thinking about a bit, like when this family is struggling and just that connection many of us have today uh, with credit cards and technology. Yeah, and, and think about it. I mean, anybody listening to this right now, do you know all your passwords? Do you know your <laughs> your iPay password? Do you know, um, yeah, do you know your PIN number at your bank? Yeah. Do you, you know, all, all, do you know your credit card number even? Yeah. And if you were suddenly severed from all your ways of paying for things, what would happen to you um, if you were in this kind of crisis situation? Now, if you're not in the middle of a crisis like that, you know, you call your credit card company or whatever, they mail you a new credit card. But what if you no longer have a mailing address? What now? Yeah. Now, these are the kinds of problems that are faced by um, the, the poor all the time. You know, this is just yeah. standard for, for anyone who struggles day to day, paycheck to paycheck. Um, but, you know, I, one of the one of the characters in here, you know, talks about um, you know, it's an, it's a very self-referential moment in the novel where she's being interviewed and she's she's a disaster studies expert. And she says, you know, make your story about, you know, white people in trouble. It works every time. And yeah. it's rich white people in trouble. Right. Yeah. And that's a kind of narrative, um, you know, that that, you know, once you're once you're reading about that, oh, my God, well, this is someone who shouldn't be having these these issues, you know, and that's a kind of deliberate framing that I wanted to kind of um get in the faces of readers to to make them think about that relationship between kind of casual wealth and um and displacement and downward mobility yeah no absolutely and the other question i mean i have lots of questions for you but i also know we don't have a lot of time but um I was just like, I remember the family, like they are stranded and they're trying to get help and the way those that have kind of view them and the suspicions that come with that. And when the IDPs are finally in this mega settlement again and they are trying to interact with the community, for example, when they go to the mall and again, they are already seen as the other. I found that fascinating to me considering that these are all still Americans and I'm just yes. curious as to what's going on in, in the book with this or what your yeah. own tech is. So, yeah, so that, you know, just plot wise, they're, they're at this huge mega shelter that holds some 10,000 people in Oklahoma. And it's one of 18 or 20 mega shelters in the southern United States that have been set up in the wake of the storm. Um, and, you know, they go to a... Um, they go into town, into the nearby town on a bus you know, that takes people in to go to Walmart or the dollar store or whatever to, to get things or just to get a little bit of a break from the shelter. And, um, you know, people see them and they see their armbands that they yeah. get them into the shelter and get them meals and so on. Um, and they understand that these these people live, um, you know, the, this character, Daphne and her family live in um, live in this mega shelter and you know, it, it turns them into a kind of different sort of population. They feel observed in that way. Um, and it it also turns them into um, 
refugees within their own country. And, you know, if you think about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, there was so much um, so much language around refugees versus displaced mm-hmm. and you know, a, a kind of struggle over definition mm-hmm. um, among people who, you know, and disaster studies specialists have looked working on Katrina and it's in its aftermath have, have looked have thought about this, about, you know, what those kinds of um, semantic battles over the the definite the self-definition and the institutional defining of right. people who were displaced by Katrina um, and 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 what that meant and what it meant for food and and shelter and the provision of resources so it's as if people were were treated as refugees not citizens not mm-hmm. fully citizens within their own country and of course that is you know when you if you multiply Katrina by 20 or 30 as this hurricane imagined in this book does, um, what then does that turn into and how many other populations does it affect? So that's, you know, the, a lot of reading I did in disaster studies. So much of this, this the controversies treated in the book, the government dysfunction and so on, even even what shelter looks like, what government mm-hmm. supplied shelter looks like came out of, of um, Katrina and came out of research I did, you know, based on on how the government is preparing itself to respond to megastorms like Luna. Um, you know, what will that look like in, in August or September of this year if there's a big Cat 5 in, in Florida um, or in, in Texas or, or Louisiana? You know, what is that going to mean? Um, and, you know, we've had a lot of experiences since Luna in the disaster relief community. Um, but but it, feel, it feels like the government keeps not learning lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we you know, massive cuts to FEMA budgets mm-hmm. and so on. And, and, you know, disputes between the governor of Florida and, and the president about whether, you know, um, who deserves relief funding and, mm-hmm. and whether it's going to go to blue states or red states. It's this, these kind of awful sorts of political battles. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but it's, it's you know, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. No, but it, I mean, it's, it's also something that we have to continue to think about because, what we see again and again, the moment you start to look at people as the other, uh, that basically just leads us down kind of really a tunnel that we don't want to go because then we don't feel they are deserving uh, of the same level of human rights and privileges and assistance. Um, Yes. And one thing that fascinated me, and maybe it's just a comment more than anything, when I was reading the book, and of course, um, America is a wealthy country, and you do an amazing job of really demonstrating the lack of resources, you know, all the living conditions in, in these mega shelters. But at the same time, I kept thinking about all of these camps I've worked in, in some of the countries that are not, that not, are not as wealthy. And from that kind of comparative point of view, I was like, these mega shelters seem to actually not be so bad. But that's just something that... Yeah, that, yeah. that <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, and that, that, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great observation. And one of the reasons that it's not so bad is because of Rain Holton. Right. You know, the, the character who is, yeah. um, who is running the place for FEMA and mm-hmm. the Red Cross. And, you know, I, I try to get across in some of the, the um, excerpts that you see from other shelters that it's not so great in other places. Correct. And that, Correct. that it really depends on, you know, the luck of the draw, but the specific Correct. team of people running and, and able to get resources. Yeah, no, correct. So I know you've mentioned a bit 
privileged class, of course, displacement, which we've been speaking about, um, race as well. But some of the other thing that struck me, and maybe you can speak to this a bit, is how this kind of situation or crisis also exhibit pre-existing challenges for people. So I think you bring in, you know, the drug, drug addiction, of course, we saw, I think, suicide in there, mental mm. illness, guns um, as well. And I think in the mega shelter, there's actually a community that have decided to become their own kind of country, quote unquote, um, unemployment as well, you know, uh, when it comes to actually, you kind of respond to an emergency, but then after the emergency, then where do people go? How do yeah. they get back to their lives? And maybe you can speak a little bit more about that as well. Yeah. So, well, I mean, if, if you know, I began this book before, um, before COVID. And if you think about COVID as a particular kind of catastrophe, mm-hmm. think about how it's exacerbated pre-existing inequalities, um, inequities, dysfunctions on the part of government. Um, you know, it's a catastrophe pokes at pre-existing problems and makes yeah. them makes them worse. So, you know, people in the in the wake of Hurricane Hugo, for example, opioid addiction just spiked through the roof um, in relationship to homelessness and displacement and that's you know just one example healthcare if you're in a mega shelter and you're in the middle of chemotherapy how yeah. then do you how then do you get hooked back up yeah. um how especially if there's 10,000 new people in a county in the middle of Oklahoma who need medical care what how, how do they get their insulin right all, all these kinds of things are the the unavailability of of medicines healthcare everything just gets exacerbated, just gets multiplied. So a, a catastrophe like something like Hurricane Luna imagined in the displacements is a, a kind of catastrophe multiplier, I guess you could say. Like COVID, you know, it puts, it puts pressure on pre-existing political divisions, bureaucratic incompetence, and it exposes it all in, in kind of horrifying ways. And so that's what I wanted this storm to do. I, one of the reasons I you know, I've always been interested in in climate novels, but I didn't want this to be, you know, set a thousand years in the future. I didn't. I, I love novels like that. There's so many yeah. that, that I that I've read and just love. But I but I really wanted this to be um, very much about our moment, um, yeah. exacerbations of our moment that will come about because of climate change in in our, you know, could be six months from now. And I, you know, I really yeah. want to think about those kinds of present day issues. Yeah. And COVID only exacerbated that because I finished the novel, finished the final draft of the novel, really in the first six months of COVID and, and was oh, thinking wow. about it and, and ended up having to incorporate it into the framing of, of how I was talking about it because it was so huge. It was like people can't be just pretending it didn't happen. So I, there's you know moments where I'm glimpsing at it. Yeah. Now, and the other aspect I liked a lot is um, it's not all misery um it's not all terrible i mean people are going through such trauma and such an awful event that's dislodged everyone but there's so much resilience uh, among the community there's so much um you know strength and, and and courage and love as well and actually rebuilding of relationships uh among uh many of these these characters 
Uh, I mean, one of the things I, I, <laughs> I tend to say, especially when I was going through the pandemic, I kept saying to myself or thinking that as human beings, we have this capacity to, to be resilient and to, to be hopeful in many ways, um, to be courageous and to be kind and to adapt. Uh, but maybe if you could also just speak a little bit about why this was important to... Yeah, no, I'm so glad you said that, Ruth, because that, that, in fact, is, is the other main theme of the book, I would say, is resilience and what that looks like in situations like this and the resources that people use to become resilient. Yeah. And, you know, they're, one of the main ones is art. Yeah. And the, the, the main character, Daphne, she is a ceramic artist and a sculptor and there's one point when she's really at a low in, in the shelter when she, I, I won't spoil some of the things in the plot that did bring her down so, so badly, but there's one point where she's sleeping on the side of a creek and she wakes up smelling the soil and she realizes she smells clay and mm -hmm. she digs the earth, she digs clay out of the earth and realizes, my, you know, this, this resource after all of my art has been destroyed, I've got the raw material for art here. And she brings it into the camp and makes clay, gets the children in the in yeah. the mega shelter involved, and that becomes a way that she kind of pulls herself out of it. Um, there's other resources for for resilience as well, reading, for example, yeah. or um, you know, building things together, and that you know, different ways of forging community. And that's you know, in the wake of even the worst disasters, people will um, will come together and pull for each other and help yeah. each other. Often people won't, though. And then so the battle between resilience and whatever it's, you know, resilience and decadence, I guess you yeah. could say, resilience and community versus, you know, individualism and and division. Those that's that's one of the central tensions in the novel. Um, and I think that's one of the central tensions in the aftermath of yeah. any great catastrophe. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um no, I did. No, I, I thought you did that really well through the characters in, in, in illustrating that. And the children, I really loved the kids <laughs> very much as well. Yeah, well it, and begins, it begins through the eyes of a kid, you know, playing a game, kind of yeah. this very elaborate game of tag with all these crazy rules. Um, and that's how you begin is, is right in the, in the middle of things before the hurricane is struck in kind of the prologue from... A point of view of one of the children and i, I yeah. wanted to emphasize that because they're having the time of their lives some of them absolutely are, right? and that that is um you know as long as they can eat and they have shelter they're together and they form their own kind of community yeah. um at yeah. least for certain parts of the novel and then you know i wanted to emphasize that from the beginning yeah no i did i really enjoyed spending times with these kids i mean they are really fully developed characters they are friendships they are support for each other but also their own struggles um yes. and as those relationships some of them fracture bruce i'm coming towards the end of my final yeah. questions um you already mentioned it the framing of the novel um, which also I think made it really ambitious. It's quite uh, an ambitious and uh, so much admiration for you as well, actually, for what with what you've achieved. But it does, I know it's a close third point of view, but then you do have some uh, first-person narratives and transcri transcriptions as well. And I guess my question for you is, why did you do it that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It was a... It was a um, 
kind of a stylistic and formal question as well. And I'm just to show people what, so this is the book and I can actually show you, people who are watching, you can see mm -hmm. it visually. So there's, you know, the novel is going along, it's in a third person. And then we get to these parts where you have this, um, this digital project, it's called The Great Displacement, a digital chronicle of the Luna migration. And you only get it seven or eight times in the course of the novel, but you have, um, you know, first person testimonials and the conceit is you can hit an audio button and they'll play for you. Or you get some charts or, or some maps that show you where these displacement shelters are, um, maps of migration, you know, where people went internally in the United States. Um, and those, what I wanted, you know, I really, the, the story focuses on, I guess, maybe five or six central points of view. Yeah. But then I really wanted to set that within a much larger national and international story. And one of the only ways I found to do that was to, was to present the storm and its aftermath retrospectively. So while you're reading the novel and you're reading about Daphne and her kids, um, and about um, about Rain Holton and her interaction with this shelter that she's she's running. You're also getting a couple of dozen smaller stories about other people who were from Houston or from from Florida or who were at the National Hurricane Center or were um, you also you know hear from the governor of Florida who had yeah. to make the decision about evacuation and maybe made it a little bit too late. Um, but, you know, you're only getting them in little glimpses. So it's a little bit like an oral history, but it's presented as a digital humanities project at a university. And the person who put that together is one of the characters that you come across. I won't say who it is, but it's one of the characters that you come across in the novel working some years later, putting together this this larger story. And so that's a way of, of for me, it was a way of, of placing this small story about a family within this immense Kind of story of Hurricane Luna and its aftermath. Yeah, and it, honestly, it helped me a lot. I have to say, in terms of understanding the context, I know it's still all fictionalized, <laughs> but it yeah. did help a lot. Um, and I think in some of the transcripts as well, we meet characters who are affected by uh, the hurricanes before, which helped them to prepare. You know, yes. we meet children of some of the parents, yeah. and and I thought I really thought it helped helped to give more context to yeah. what's going on in, in the present. My last question for you, um, so is if there was one action, someone who will listen to this interview or watch it, that they could take to address the causes of uh, climate change, huh. what would that be for you? One person? Anyone, anyone, one action, one action that people can take. Action. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Stop relying <laughs> on fossil fuels, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, that's the big question. I, I don't know. You know, I, it's, it's so hard because it's one tiny little, this novel is one tiny little voice in a huge chorus right now of people screaming, pay attention. Yeah. And if that's one thing that the novel does, if it can just get one tiny little extra constituency to pay attention right. that would be um that would be a, a goal but it's you know I, I i hate to end end things on a on a sour note but it feels like you know how many people have to scream yeah, yeah. look up yeah no i hear you and uh, i often say we 
continue to, to do as much as we can individually, collectively. I used to have this kind of theory, even if you combat one person, that's just one person more. Um, so, yeah. so that's it for me, unless you have any other questions for me. Oh, this was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Now, thank you. Thank you really for making the time. I know you are very busy, especially with uh, your new book. Again, congratulations. And maybe again, maybe where would people find your book if they want to buy it? Really anywhere. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm always a big proponent of independent bookstores. Um, so just your, your local bookstore. Um, bookshop.org online is, is always a great place to go. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Bruce today uh, on Saha Stories and Humanitarian Action. If you've enjoyed this conversation, like, comment, share, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you.